Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you tuned in as Pastor Matt leads us in a study of God's Word. This morning we continue our sermon series from the book of Matthew. Standing now on the eve of Christ's crucifixion. For the past several weeks, we've been following Jesus through the streets of Jerusalem from his triumphal entry into the capital city to the flipping over of tables in the temple, from the rebuke of the religious leaders to the praise of a broken alabaster. With all that took place during the Jewish Passover, there is no wonder Matthew devoted so much of his gospel to Christ's final week. There's just too much to tell. And yet, swirling in the background through all of it is this plot to end Jesus' life. Just last week, we read about the elders and the chief priests who were seeking to seize Christ and kill him. And though they were resigned to wait a few days for fear of the crowds, a betrayer had come forward, expediting their plan. Knowing his enemies will soon be on the approach, the Lord desires to spend his last evening with his disciples, celebrating his final Passover and their first communion. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 26 and follow along as we read God's word together, beginning in verse 17. Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
May God bless the reading of his word. Now, because most of us do not celebrate the Jewish festivals, it might be difficult to understand the difference between the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the one that Matthew mentions in the beginning of verse 17. Of the two, Passover is far more familiar to us as the time when the Jewish people set aside to remember God's hand of deliverance. Some 1,400 years before Jesus walked on earth, the final plague sent that angel of death to Egypt where the Hebrew people were enslaved. The angel would kill the firstborn of each family. And yet, in mercy, God told the Israelites to paint their doorway with the blood of a lamb so that upon seeing the blood, the angel of death would pass over. Their celebration of that event took place on the 14th day of Nisan, the first month of the Jewish calendar, in accordance with God's instructions. That much we know. But what of this Feast of Unleavened Bread? Why would they start another holiday while the previous one was still ongoing? Well, because they share a great deal in common. You see, the Passover ended on the 14th with a meal consisting of bitter herbs, diluted wine, a roasted lamb, and unleavened bread. And while Passover itself was coming to its conclusion, the Jewish people were not to eat anything leavened for another seven days after that. Now this day will be a memorial to you, God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 12. And you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations you are to celebrate as, as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty first day of the month at evening. It turns out these are not two distinct holidays at all, but ones that are perfectly and uniquely connected, both of them helping to stir the memories of those whose ancestors were delivered by God from Pharaoh way back when. What a perfect time then for Jesus and his disciples to break bread, a time when redemption was on the minds of all Jerusalem and deliverance was found in the blood of a lamb. As one theologian suggested, this was easily the most important meal in the history of the world. And we are about to find out why. First, 
it helps us realize that Jesus remained in full control through all of the events of his passion. We'll take a look back at verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Now, if you have been following with us over the past several months, you may have recognized some similarities between this account and the very specific instructions given to the disciples in preparation for the triumphal entry. Back in chapter, uh, a couple chapters ago, Jesus told two of the apostles to go into the neighboring village and find a cult upon which no one had ever sat and bring it to him. And not only did the situation play out exactly as he described it, Christ even told the apostles who would come asking questions and what they should say in response. Well, as unusual a scene as we found it with that donkey, this one amazes even more. Imagine walking amongst the crowd of two million people in Jerusalem looking for a certain man. That was the Lord's only description of this person. That and the fact that he would be carrying water when they crossed paths, as Mark's parallel account recognizes, where Jesus said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. Of all the people in the holy city that day, and there were many, how could Jesus be sure that they would find the one specific, particular man. And how did that guy know the disciples were coming such that he would willingly offer them a room? How do these things happen with such assurance and precision? Because Jesus is in full control of every tiny little detail. In fact, that's the reason the gospel writers share these nuances with us in the first place. They could have simply said, the disciples found a place and they ate. But they want to assure us that Jesus was at all times fully aware of and in control over the events of which are about to take place. And that is critically important for us to recognize this morning, friends. Because many in the realm of Christendom choose not 
to believe it. See, many liberal theologians maintain that at this exact moment, Jesus suddenly and inexplicably lost control of the situation. Until now, they would tell you, he had mastery over his domain. He calmed the waves, exercised demons, fed 5,000 with a couple of fish. He had authority to govern everything in the world. But in his final hours, they would say, he no longer had that same control. But if Jesus were an unwilling victim, crushed by a more powerful foe, well, that changes things dramatically. It changes the fulfillment of prophecy. It changes the wonder of the cross. It changes the very nature of our redemption. If Christ did not go on his own accord, then his was not a sacrifice of love and mercy, but the murder of someone who had no choice. But that is not the Jesus that we see. Now, as James Edwards once wrote, Christ is not a tragic hero caught in events beyond his control. There is no hint of desperation, anger, or futility on his part. Jesus does not cower or retreat as plots are hatched against him. He displays, as he has throughout the gospel, both the autonomy and the authority to follow a course he has freely chosen in accordance with the will of God. So you see, friends, Christ chose what was about to happen down to the very last detail. He was never surprised. He was never caught off guard. He was never in a situation outside his providence or his will. Do you see? Indeed, through all the trials, the interrogations, the scoffing, and the contempt, Jesus remained in full control. Oh, but not only that. As we see in verse 20, Jesus revealed his betrayer that night as well. Now, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. And they were eating. As they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. And he answered, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The son of man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Now, because we have already been clued into this by the narrator in verse 14 and have become so familiar with it as a matter of historical record, the fact that Jesus would be betrayed does not shock us. 
the way that it would have the disciples. Oh, but in this moment, while they were gathered around that table, this idea of betrayal, that concept, that notion was completely and entirely new. Sure, Christ had told them about his death, how the religious leaders would seek to destroy him, how he would be handed over, beaten, and scorned. He even told them about his resurrection three days later. But only here does Jesus tell them that one of his own would turn against. To get the message across, Jesus is pulling imagery from the Old Testament. In Psalm 41, verse 9, a suffering David said, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And just as it caused David great anguish to think of being betrayed by someone so close, it caused the disciples tremendous grief as well. Grief and a bit of soul Searching. I suppose that's why Jesus didn't point directly at Judas and expose him on the spot. Because he wanted his disciples to search the depths of their hearts and ask some critically important questions. Am I fully committed to this Christ Jesus thing? Could I be so fickle as to turn against him? Will it be me that one day sells him out? These are really important questions. Not just for the people in the first century world, but for you and I today. In fact, this is the exact type of self-reflection that is commanded of us before we partake of the Lord and his supper. A man must examine himself, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Oh, perhaps we should be asking, is it I, Lord, who will betray you in the future? Better yet, sorry, Lord, for having betrayed you in the past. These words ought to provoke those questions. Questions every one of the disciples took to heart. Save one. The one who proved the traitor. So after dipping bread in the bowl, Jesus finally reveals the identity of that man as none other than Judas Iscariot. While the rest of the disciples were no doubt reeling, Jesus assures them that this is all in accordance with God's plan. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, he says in verse 24. Just as the prophets had predicted, just as God himself had laid it out. 
And yet even though Judas' betrayal was ordained according to the will of the Father, he is still held responsible for his own evil actions. Though Jesus, in one sense, had to be crucified, that in no way relieves the sinner from personal guilt. Yes, the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not even been born. Like all who reject Christ, Judas would be damned forever. And the eternal punishment that awaits is so severe that to have never existed at all would be infinitely better. The writer of Hebrews explains it this way. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It should stand as a warning, not only to the disciples who first heard it, but to every person living today. Our God is a God of justice, a God of vengeance, and a God of wrath. And woe is the word to all who enact it. Are you there? Jesus remained in full control of the situation. He revealed his betrayer as they ate. And as we see in verse 26, he redefined the Passover and its symbols. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take Eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Now, several times during a traditional Passover meal, the head of the household would interpret the meaning of the elements on the table. If you've been to one of our Seder meals in years past, you might remember hearing how all of the various symbols connect with one another. And so there's nothing all that unusual here as Jesus stands to address the group. He would have been expected to lead them in understanding as part of the whole event. And yet how Jesus explains the elements is very different Indeed, since the day that they left Egypt, the Jewish people had celebrated this same meal and heard the same explanation given to them. 
The bitter herbs, a reminder of the bitterness of their slavery. Salt water to remember the tears they shed. A lamb as the sacrifice that brought their deliverance. Everything they ate took them back to the night of their independence when death passed by their door. It's a tremendous celebration. It's one Jesus participated in every year of his life. But on this occasion, as he stood only hours now from crucifixion, Christ shows them something even more significant to remember. Giving two elements of the Passover a brand new meaning. Holding before them some of the bread, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now, you have to understand the bread already meant something else to these people. The unleavened bread for which their week-long festival was named was given so they would remember the haste with which they left Egypt. Yeast, which would ordinarily be added to the bread's ingredients, took time to rise. But the Hebrew slaves did not have that time. Being told to eat with their loins girded, their sandals on their feet, and their staff in their hand with great haste at the Lord's Passover. The original meal was eaten in quite a hurry. Just as the Lord instructed. And yet, through the centuries, it had become a much more prolonged event. To the point where we see Jesus and his disciples here reclining at the table for a number of hours. Perhaps the symbolism of the unleavened bread had lost some of its impact. Oh, but not to worry. Jesus was about to reveal something in the bread that was new. This bread, he says, now represents my body. Broken and that I will be killed. And given that you might partake in it. And that's not the only symbol that Jesus redefined that evening. In the same way that he took a closer look at the bread, he gives them a new understanding of the cup as well. It turns out there were actually four cups of wine consumed at the Passover, each of them with their own significance in accordance with the four promises that God made to the Hebrew people in Exodus chapter 6. First, the cup of sanctification. Based on God's statement, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The second cup, the cup of deliverance. Because God said, I will deliver you from slavery. Third, the cup of redemption. As God said, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And the final cup, the cup of Praise, restoration, or hope based on God's statement, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. When it was time for the disciples to drink that third cup, 
Jesus tells them exactly how they would find their redemption. Not from the oppression of the Egyptians, but from the oppression of sin. That just as God said, it would come by way of an outstretched arm. Two of them, actually. Nailed to the cross of Calvary. When it was time for them to drink that third cup, Jesus tells them exactly how they would find their redemption. This redemption cup, this is my blood. Blood of a new and everlasting covenant which will be poured out completely just a few hours from now. What a marvelous transition from the old covenant to the new. From Passover to communion. Just as one looks back at the Jews' deliverance from the destroyer in Egypt, the other looks back at our deliverance from sin at the cross, accomplished for us and given to us by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Life is in that blood. And it was poured out for many. Do you see that word there at the end of verse 28? This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. For forgiveness of sins. Are you part of that many? As Jesus said in John chapter 6, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. Because apart from him and his sacrifice, there is no other means of redemption for you. You got to take in that bread, friends. And you got to drink that cup. And we have the opportunity to do that here this morning during a time of communion. Because these are still the symbols of our faith, representing the broken body and the shed blood of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we come to that moment this morning, I would ask that in accordance with Scripture, we undergo that examination. That just like the disciples, we would ask ourselves these difficult questions. Is it I, Lord? Am I a part? Where do I stand with you, Jesus? trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again if you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose or want to connect with Pastor Matt. 
Come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue 